Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm wishing you a happy Thursday in advance. I usually record the show on Wednesday evenings to be as up to date as possible when the show launches on Thursday. However, I'm traveling this week, so I'm recording on Monday night in hopes that nothing too crazy happens this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, which I actually think is very unlikely, given especially one of the topics that we're talking about this week. So let me give you the rundown. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw that I was talking about this book called Well-Read Black Girl. So I had a chance to pick it up and give it a read. And I don't have a review so much as I have some quick inspirations um, that are about the book. If you haven't heard of it, it's Gloria Edim. I hope I'm pronouncing her name the right way. Gloria is the founder of Well-Read Black Girl, which is technically a, a book club, but it's actually more of a movement. In addition to the book and the online spaces that she holds, she also has an annual festival that celebrates Black female authors, which is super exciting. I didn't even know it existed until I was reading her bio in the book. And I was like, I would like to attend this festival. I would like to speak at this festival as a Black female author who is working on her next book. But the premise of the book is an anthology of well-known Black authors who are musing on books that change their lives. So a lot of people are inspired by Toni Morrison and Alice Walker. Alice Walker's daughter, Rebecca, is actually one of the voices that is included in the book. But it's a bunch of writers talking about the authors who inspired them to want to write, who gave them their first reflections of themselves in writing or literature and made them think like, oh, I could do that. And they're also talking about why they write. It's kind of nerdy, but I've noticed on Instagram that whenever I do post about the books that I'm reading or asking what other people are reading, they're always some of the most popular posts. I know a lot of you are very avid readers, so this is definitely a book that you should check out. And a lot of people also hit me up about writing tips, like how how to develop yourself as a writer or as a storyteller. This book has, by way of just because it's writers writing on writing, it has really good tips about the process of writing and the process of storytelling and the impact that it makes on these women and the impact of writing uh, by proxy, the impact of writing in general. Really quick read. I read it in a day, but I highly recommend it. And so I just want to talk about some of the thoughts that it um, that it inspired in me in terms of the book that I'm working on. And it actually inspired me to go a little deeper with some of the content that I'm that I'm talking about. So next up, what the hell is going on in Virginia? The governor of Virginia on last Friday, this conservative website publishes a photo from the governor's medical school yearbook that depicts two people, one in blackface, another one in a Klan outfit. I specifically don't say costume because a Klan outfit is just that. Like no one's making Klan outfits to dress up in. You got to borrow an outfit from a member Or if your mom knows how to sew one, then she's probably sewed one for your dad and your uncles too. So this website publishes his yearbook page with his name on it, his picture from that time, it was 1984, and this picture of two people in blackface and then the Klan outfit. Initially, the governor says, I've made terrible mistakes. I apologize for, you know, participating in this photo. And so everyone says you should resign, which I have mixed feelings about. He's a Democrat. Surprise, surprise. 
And Democratic leadership immediately denounces him. He has the misfortune of this coming to light in an election year. So the reaction is swift. Everyone says he has to resign. He refuses to resign. The next day he comes out and he says, on second thought, it wasn't me in the photo. So Virginia is going through its own personal shit show. This is compounded by the fact that the lieutenant governor who would replace the governor if he stepped down is a black guy. As of Saturday and Sunday, everyone's like, black dude is solid. Sunday night, the same website that released the photos about the governor releases a story about how the lieutenant governor allegedly assaulted a woman. Politics-wise, Virginia is a complete shit show right now. Like, it's it's a mess. So we're going to talk about all of that. And then we're also going to talk about medical bias. Because that's something that shouldn't be swept under the rug. Like, the political stuff, like, you can sort all of that out. But the medical bias, that's that's a little harder to, to identify and to root out. But it has very real consequences for people of color. An interesting topic, not necessarily national news, but adult bedwetting. I'm in several different groups on on different platforms that talk about dating and relationships, families, interpersonal relationships of all sorts. Most of them function very similar to what I do with Ask Demetria. So it's just ask somebody else. But I always like to see the feedback from different questions from commenters, as well as from other coaches, therapists, but, you know, just a way to keep my mind sharp and, and to just be aware of what people are talking about and the issues that people are facing. It started off with a discussion about children who wet the bed to a couple people mentioning that their adult partners and spouses had wet the bed as a result of heavy drinking. Like the first person that threw it out there, she said it and I saw it and was like, oh, word? Like, is is this a thing? Like, it's one thing to drink and then have to keep going to the bathroom every 30 minutes because you've been drinking so much. Drinking so much that you pee on yourself and inadvertently your partner, because they're in the bed with you, is a whole different thing. And we're going to have to discuss that. And then last but not least, I want to talk about that Netflix documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. What the fuck is going on at Netflix? Because these documentaries lately have been out of control. First, there's Fire Festival with the man willing to perform a sexual act in exchange for cases of Avion. And then there's Ja Rule talking about it's not fraud, it's false advertising. I thought, naively, that it would be a while before I was to hear a tale that would top scamming ass Billy McFarlane from the Fire Festival. But no, oh no. Netflix determined that was a lie. I hope you've seen this documentary. I put it last. So for the people that haven't seen it and don't want spoilers, it's the very last thing for this episode. So after we get past adult bedwetting, if you stick with me that far, if you don't want to hear about the spoilers for Abducted at First Sight, then you can cut me off then. But yeah, so those are the topics that we're delving into this week. Hope you're ready. So I want to start with Well-Read Black Girl. I read the book in a day. It's like your favorite author musing for five to seven pages about something that transformed her life and inspired her for her passions. My passion is writing, so this directly speaks to me. But even if your passion is not writing, just the idea of what sparked you to go forth into whatever that you're passionate about. 
There was a great write-up in the in the New York Times about Gloria Idim. Just a reminder, she's the founder of Well-Read Black Girl. I was really excited about what she was doing, and I wanted to support her project, so I, I picked up the book. It's so good. And some of my favorite writers are there. Lynn Nottage, Veronica Chambers, Marita Golden, Tayari Jones from American Marriage. That was a really, really big book last year. Rebecca Walker, which I mentioned, Alice Walker's daughter, Jessamine Ward, a lot of really great writers. I am an avid reader. I'm kind of a nerd if you haven't picked up on that yet. I read a lot. I write all the time, even when I'm not publishing stuff. Like I'm just always like writing. It's it's like my passion. And I've never really thought until I read this book about why I do it. Reading and writing are something that are just very instinctual to me, like the same way that some people be hungry and want to eat. Like I'll be hungry to read. Like I'll be like, "Mm, I haven't read anything in a while. I need to like pick something up. As much how I get informed and affirmed, but it's also how I grow. And I find very much that I like the uncomfortable parts of a story, especially memoirs. I like the chapters that people don't often read out loud. And those are also the chapters I find that make people interesting and human and relatable. No one wants to read a book about someone who always made the right decision. All I do is win, win, win. Like, no, that's that's not how anyone's life operates. You want to hear conflicts that you had, the adversity that you faced, and how you were able to eventually either embrace them or overcome them is makes for a much more interesting story than everything was really great and continued to be really great. I'm I'm bored. Turn this off. I think the things that I'm drawn to are, especially right now, are because of the headspace that I'm in. A little over a year ago, I publicly announced that I had left my husband and I've been in a divorce battle for like a year and a half now. It's very, very, very hard and very, very, very frustrating. In some days, it's really hard to be present or optimistic. A lot of the books that I've been drawn to lately have been about women who have overcome difficult times, not necessarily divorce, but women who have had to rebuild themselves after a tragedy. I I like to say sometimes that I pulled the pin in my own grenade. I blew up every aspect of my life and and let the pieces fall where they may. Before I was reading Well-Read Black Girl, I was reading Coretta Scott King's autobiography. And this book she wrote because she wanted to establish herself outside of her husband's identity. She wants people to know who Coretta Scott was before she became Coretta Scott King, and then who she continued to be after her husband was assassinated. She's left with four or five kids to raise on her own. That's massive tragedy. It's a really strong woman in a way that I don't think people realize. The other book that that I've read recently that's had a really big impact on me, I traveled to Ghana last year and August for the Chale Wote Festival. Think of it as almost like Art Basel, but in Africa. It's the biggest street arts festival in Africa. Like tons of people just descend on Jamestown. It's like a neighborhood in Accra, which is Ghana's capital. But Maya Angelou wrote a book about her time in Ghana. I think it's All God's Children Have Traveling Shoes. 
And it's very interesting to me that she had similar observations of her time in Ghana. She lived there for three years. I was only there for like a week and a half. But she had very similar observations about Ghana that I made when I was there. But like 50 years later, here's where I'm going with this. Maya Angelou is a very well-respected, intelligent, revered woman. When you think of her, you think wisdom, sophistication, class, right? In her book, she's fresh off a divorce. She's in Ghana. She doesn't have a lot of money. She's relying on the charity of other people. But she has this encounter with Malcolm X when he comes to visit And he's a really, really big deal. Maya Angelou, a couple of her friends are driving Malcolm X, I want to say to the airport or something. And he asked her like what she thought of some woman. And Maya Angelou is being petty. And she proceeds to drag the woman. And Malcolm X reads her for filth. And he was like, you know what? I heard of you. And I I thought that you were a woman of sophistication and class and respectability. But really, you're small-minded and petty dragging this woman. Of all the passages in the book, I love that part the most because it shows there's growth. There's room for growth and opportunity. So you can still make a ton of mistakes. You can still be petty and small-minded. And all of the things that we look at as negative, but you still have the opportunity to grow into greatness. You don't have to be tomorrow what you are today. You can grow. I keep notes every day, like not really a a journal per se, but just notes about things that move me, things that reflect. It's part of my wind down for for the night. And I was like, I have to include this in the podcast because If just reading this book had this great impact on me, I wonder what will have on other people, what other thoughts will spring forth from it. I hope that you give the book a read and definitely let me know how it inspired you or how it moved you. You can visit me at DemetriaLLucas.com and I'll put up a page just specifically about the book, not just the podcast in general, but specifically about the book where you can come and weigh in on what your thoughts were, what it inspired you to think about. I would love to hear it. So next up, the governor of Virginia, who has lost his goddamn mind. Last week, Friday, Big League Politics, a conservative website, runs this picture of the governor's page from his medical school yearbook. Can I tell you that I didn't even know medical schools had a yearbook? I didn't even know colleges had one. Like I went to University of Maryland and there were 30,000 students. Did they have a yearbook? If they did, my picture's not in it. I don't even think my name would be in it. I never sat for a picture I went to NYU for grad school. I don't ever remember someone mentioning a yearbook. And I was there for journalism. So I figure if there was a yearbook to be produced, it probably would have come out of my department or we would have worked in conjunction with the undergrad students on it. But on said governor's yearbook page, he has a picture of two people who were dressed up. They appear to be attending a party. One of the people is wearing blackface and another one is in a Klan outfit with a pointy hat and all. This comes to light via via the website, the Big League Politics. The governor, Ralph Northam, he's a Democrat. At first, he acknowledges that he is one of the figures in the offensive image. And he apologizes. Quote, for the decision I made to appear as I did in this photo. This is Friday when the photo comes out. 
He has the unfortunate timing of this photo coming out during an election year. So Democrats have already started campaigning. All the candidates start weighing in, saying that he should resign. And then on Saturday, he does a press conference where he refuses to resign and then reverses his position on the photo. And it's like, well, on second thought, it wasn't me. Sir, what in the shaggy are you trying to pull? Same press conference where he denies that he's the person in the Klan outfit and the person in blackface. He also says, but by the way, at that same year in a different location, he said, I went to a party as Michael Jackson and I darkened my face with shoe polish, but it wasn't blackface. So it's not you in the blackface in the picture on your yearbook page, but you were in blackface or you darkened your skin that same year at a different event. Sir, he's not done yet. He goes on to say that he only used a little bit of shoe polish because shoe polish is really hard to get off so you don't use a lot. What? See, I can't tell you about the difficulty of using shoe polish and how hard it is to get off because I've never used shoe polish on my face. Only someone who has used shoe polish on their face before knows about the difficulty of it coming off. Sir, how many times have you been in blackface? Because on day one, you're like, oh, I apologize for being in the photo. He didn't identify whether he was the person in blackface or the person in the Klan outfit. I think the Klan outfit is probably slightly worse than the blackface, but not enough where it's like, well, one's forgivable, the other's not. Like, both of them are pretty fucked up. How many times have you been in blackface and or in a Klan outfit where you initially think that the photo being referred to could be you? If you hear a story about me and somebody says Demetria Lucas was in a Klan outfit or a blackface outfit, which one was it? And I'd be like, on my mama, on my hood, never happened. As opposed to, yeah, it was me. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. Because you've done it. You just weren't photographed doing it. Sir, sir. In a different climate, in a different election cycle, he could have gotten away with this. Because it's been 35 years since it happened, it feels weird to hold somebody responsible for a non-criminal act 35 years later. And let me explain that a little further because I've publicly gone in about people like Nate Parker for what he did in college and then also Brett Kavanaugh who just went to the Supreme Court about what he did in high school. The issue for me wasn't what these men did then, it was how they responded to it in the present. With Nate Parker and the alleged rape train, whatever you want to call it, of the white girl in his apartment when he was in college. All he had to say as a grown ass man was, I deeply regret decisions that I have made in the past. With God's grace, I've been able to grow and become a better person. People would have left him alone because it sounds crazy trying to go hard at somebody over something they did their sophomore year in college, even if it's a crime. He wasn't convicted of it. Right. 
he had an out. He decided he wanted to be an arrogant asshole and be like, why are you asking me this? If he hadn't been an asshole, Nate Parker would currently be considered A-list and his film would have been nominated for something. It's completely shut out. That's all because of his attitude. Brett Kavanaugh, same thing. That's all he had to say. Neither one of them said it. Nate Parker didn't get away with it. Brett Kavanaugh got appointed to the Supreme Court. I think if Governor had said something to that effect in a different election cycle, he probably could have kept his job. But timing is everything. Too many Democrats locally and nationally have called for his head. The Democratic Party relies heavily on the black vote. They can't appear to alienate black folks and and not care about a governor in blackface or in a KKK outfit. Like they had to denounce it and they did. So he's lost the support of his party and the support of his people. There's not much he can do with that. So he got to go. He's no longer able to effectively lead. I think one of the big reasons that so many people, black people especially, were calling for his head was that his lieutenant governor is a black dude. Since the press conference, there have been even more calls for the governor to resign. And I think eventually, and which I mean by later this week, he will. I'm recording this on Monday. He may very well be out of office by the time that I post this on Thursday. I wouldn't be surprised, but he's not going to last as governor. Like that's that's a sure thing. It's just a matter of time before he either resigns or is forced out. And all this conversation about the governor and his partying proclivities, one thing that has been overlooked is this medical school. Do you know that the photo on his page in blackface is not the only photo of someone in blackface in this medical yearbook? Like, what kind of school are y'all operating? How racist are you that students feel comfortable submitting images of themselves in blackface? And how comfortable is the yearbook committee that they publish it? But back to this. There have been a lot of conversations recently about medical bias and how people of color, black folk, are affected by essentially racist doctors, doctors who are, you know, maybe it's unconscious bias, maybe it's, it's, it's intentional, but nonetheless, people of color are affected. In short, one of the ideas is black people go to the hospital and they're just, and their concerns are not given the same weight. Like you say you're in pain, they don't believe you're in pain. They think black people have some like super strength or whatever. They don't feel pain the same way that other people do. But for people who wonder how medical bias happens, like, this is how. Like, you have a bunch of racists in your med school. You have a med school that pretty much condones racism. And then these people go out into the world and some of them end up working with patients of color. If you don't think that I'm equal to you, if you think that I'm subhuman to you, you're not going to give me the same care and the same consideration. Maybe they became non-racist at some point, but maybe they didn't. And they still interact with black patients who are facing a whole bunch of issues before they get to them. And they're just another disappointment. And they keep black folk from getting the proper care that they need. It sucks. Finally, the last part of the Virginia fiasco, because that's really what this is at this point. So I think part of the reason that so many people, especially black organizations, were 
calling for the current governor, Northam, to step down is because Lieutenant Governor happens to be a black guy, a well-liked black guy, the kind of black guy who, when being sworn in as Lieutenant Governor, carried either his great-grandfather's or his great-great-grandfather's manumission papers in his pocket while he was being sworn in. Great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather was enslaved. Yo ass is Lieutenant Governor. As of Sunday, everyone was rooting for him. Everyone was excited. I I was like, you know what, bruh? You ain't got to do nothing right now. People keep saying, like, I want to say the Washington Post ran a piece saying that he should intervene and he should speak up for Northam. And I swiftly shot that down. I was like, he is nobody's magical Negro. He don't need to go say nothing defending some white man. He just need to stay black and wait is exactly what I said. Stay black and wait. Sunday night, same website that posted the picture of the current governor, either in blackface or the Klan outfit. That same website runs allegations from a woman who says that the lieutenant governor, Fairfax, assaulted her at the Democratic National Convention. (sighs) You know what word I want to use right now. I stopped using that word in public. I'm trying to be best. But my God, sir, like we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. Now, to credit, Fairfax says that he had a consensual encounter in his hotel room. He is married. He was not at the time of the encounter. He added that the Washington Post had already investigated the woman's allegations when he was running for a previous office and that they chose not to publish the story due to, quote, significant red flags and inconsistencies. So he's denying the story. He says the, the Post, it didn't pass muster with them. This site is, is running it. He's threatened to sue the site because of the accusations. And in a statement that he released online, he said, quote, everything was 100 percent consensual. There was no inappropriate contact whatsoever. I I hope that he did not rape that woman. And just, you know, without thinking of the implications of him for the office, I hope that he is a decent enough human being and he did not rape or assault this woman. I don't know how that's proven or or not proven. I don't know. I, I was happily and eagerly supporting him. I root for everybody black unless they fuck up. I do not root for um, for men of any color who assault women. So now I am putting my pom poms away and I'm just going to sit on my hands. Now, all I got to do is stay black and wait. To see what happens with him. So in equally crazy, but slightly different news, I'm in this uh, Facebook group. About dating and relationships. This one's about um, parenting. One of the women wrote in about her stepchild, who was about six, who was urinating in the bed at night. She wanted to know how to address it. The child lives with she and her husband full time. But I got the impression that she didn't have biological kids. So she never encountered what to do with a child who was still wetting the bed at six. Parents weighed in with various tips, their own stories about dealing with their, their children who had faced a similar situation so in the comment so as the conversation's going along someone mentions that her husband wets the bed sometimes 
when he drinks too much. And she's just kind of like, oh, you know, it happens. No, life happens. Like, you know, some things you just shrug off. Like, yeah, that's life. Like, that's not on my, yeah, that's life list. That's on my, that's crazy as fuck list. A grown man is is peeing in the bed because he drinks too much. Like, is that okay? That's not okay. I'm waiting for people to react. And no one does. Like a couple people actually like her comment and then they move along and talk about other things. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Is this not unusual? Like, is this, is this common? So common that people don't even raise an eyebrow over it. So on my main Facebook page, I'm like, hey guys, I was in this group. This is what this woman said. And then this woman made this comment and like, help me out here. Like, is this a common occurrence? So people weigh in and they're just like, you know what? It's actually an inability to hold your bladder is actually an early warning sign of diabetes. People point out that people can have a reaction such as wetting the bed if they've had um, extreme trauma or they have anxiety about something. Some people were like, you know, accidents happen. Like you dream you're in the bathroom. It's not a regular thing, but it's happened before. It's also could be a side effect of, you know, you're sick, you're taking certain medications. As the conversation continues, and I guess people get more comfortable sharing, more than, I would say, like four or five women wrote in, and a couple of them emailed me, but shared their stories about spouses or partners who frequently wet the bed as a result of drinking too much. I will hear you out about being an adult who wets the bed If it is a medical or psychological issue, right? This is not something that you are doing intentionally to yourself. Something has happened to you. You need help. I do expect that if this, if wetting the bed is a symptom of whatever condition that you are dealing with, you acknowledge that it is problematic and you take the proper precautions so as not to pee on yourself, or to pee on the person in the bed with you. If you need depends or you need to, I don't know, wake up every few hours to go to the restroom to make sure that you don't soil the bed. I think that that is reasonable. I don't want to make it seem like I'm making fun of anyone with a medical condition. The outrage that I have is specifically for people who are getting so fucked up that they're peeing in the bed. As we're having this conversation, someone reminds me, didn't this question come up on Ask Demetria once? It did. Years ago, when I was writing for The Root, this woman writes in and she says her husband goes out every weekend. He gets wasted with his friends. He comes home drunk and he pees in the bed. It happens once every weekend. And when she says to her husband, like, hey, this is not okay. You keep peeing in the bed. Her husband's like, yo, you're doing the most right now. Like, I have a stressful job. I need to unwind. Like, stop acting like it's a big deal. So she writes in to me and she was like, what am I supposed to do with my husband who pees in the bed every weekend? I say to her, this is absolutely unacceptable. You have to tell your husband. I was like, one, your husband has a drinking problem. I'm not going to say your husband is an alcoholic, but I will point out that the problem is peeing in the bed. It is a result of his drinking. Thus, he has a drinking problem. 
when you are drinking to the point where you lose control of your bodily functions, you have a drinking problem. This is not up for negotiation. This is a fact. I say to her, your husband has a drinking problem. You need to talk to your husband and you say you need to get a handle on your drinking. You need to drink less or you need to stop drinking or you need to get help if you have if, if you cannot address this problem on your own because it is absolutely not at all okay for you to come home and pee in the bed. Until such time as he gets a handle on his drinking, when he comes home, he needs to go sleep on an air mattress on the bathroom floor, but he needs not feel comfortable coming to lay in the bed with you and peeing in it like there's no big like it's not a big deal because it is a big deal it's unsanitary for one but it's also just disgusting to just be like oh yeah I peed and no not and like no stop peeing in the bed that's not something that a woman should be expected to deal with there's no parts of the vows that say like and I will sleep and pee no this is absolutely not okay no I just hope no one listening is experiencing that because when we started talking about it, like it actually became like a really robust conversation. And a lot of people, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of people had stories to share about their partners peeing on them because they were drunk. Medical condition, trauma. Okay, let's address the issue. Let's move forward. A grown man peeing and they're acting like it's no big deal. A dry bed is not too much to ask for. It's the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum. So. This is where if you have not watched Abducted in Plain Sight, you may want to leave the podcast. I would thank you for listening thus far. However, if you are if you are interested in hearing the craziest shit you've ever heard in your life, I would encourage you to continue. Everyone and their mother on my Facebook feed has been watching this documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. I had not initially planned to watch it, but a couple of people who I follow who have good taste were like, yo. The 20 minute mark. You gotta watch the 20 minute mark. So I was like, you know what? Nothing's gonna be crazier than the Fire Festival, but let me check it out just to see what they think comes close. So I turned on Abducted in Plain Sight. My head tilted at the six minute mark. The story is family of five living in. To Utah, they're part of the LDS church, but they're living in like East Neverwhere, right? White folks, mid seventies. Family is a mother, a father, three girls, three daughters. The mother meets this man at their church. He has a wife, father of five. She introduces their family to her family. Everyone becomes super cool. They talk about how the man would come over to the house all the time. You would bring the kids at first, but then he used to just come over. He would play with their daughters and they were uncomfortable with how much attention he showed to their oldest daughter, who was about 10. And I tilt my head because I was like, why y'all keep letting this mofo in the house? And then also, why this man keep showing up to play with your kids when he got five kids? This same father of five shows up at their house one day and he wants to take their oldest daughter horseback riding. He doesn't have any of his children with him. He's a father of five. His kids ain't nowhere to be found, but he's showing up to take your kid and your kid alone, not her two sisters, just your kid to go horseback riding. This man goes off with the kid 
It's Thursday. These people don't call the police until Monday. Like they think about calling the police on Saturday. And I think somebody put a call in, but the police station was closed. So they were like, oh, we'll just wait it out through the weekend. We don't want to make a fuss. We'll go till Monday. Your baby been missing since Thursday and you don't contact the police until Monday? What the fuck is wrong with y'all? So I watched the documentary and then I asked my mother, I said, mommy, if me and daddy left right now, it's three o'clock, right? On like Saturday or something. I said, mommy, if me and daddy left right now at three o'clock and said we were going horseback riding and my mother goes, your leg is messed up. You can't ride no horses. It's too cold to ride horses. For the people who don't follow me online, I had sciatica. I've had it since October. It's painful and awful, but I'm functioning again, able to work out. So I actually can walk and I probably could ride a horse, but that's neither here nor there. I was like, just stay with me, mommy. I was like, if me and daddy left the house right now, and mind you, my father is my biological father. He is her husband of 42 years. If me and daddy left the house right now and said we were going to go anywhere, but for the hypothetical ride horses, right? What time would you get worried about us and contact the police? And she said, those are two different times. She said, I will be worried. She was like, probably around 10 o'clock. And she was like, I would say like two grown people have gone off at three o'clock. I don't hear from you all day. And she's like, I'd probably give you a call around like 10, 30, 11. She said, if I'm able to go to sleep, I would. She was like, I'd probably sleep in the couch in the living room. So I would hear you guys when you came home. If I wake up the next morning and your father's not there and I can't contact you still, I would call the police. I want it on record. I'm telling somebody my family is missing And I'll call back in, you know, whatever time I need to, to say, okay, it's three o'clock. Like it's been 24 hours. Like I want an official missing persons report, but I want, I want to start the ball rolling. And she was like, and then I would call people and say like, you know, like my kid and my husband were supposed to come home. They didn't come home. Have you heard from them? They said they were going there. I'm going to drive out to XYZ and see if I see their car along the way or anything suspicious. I'll talk to the person that works there and see if they've seen them, what time they left. But she was like, I would start looking for you and your father. Like, I am grown, grown, like grown enough to have a grown child. My father, again, has been married for 42 years and he was grown, grown when he got married. My mother would still freak out within, what, 12 hours and call the police on us the following morning because something must be wrong. One more story. Me and my mom, my mom is from Detroit. We go back to Detroit for like this five or six days. We're bopping around Detroit. We go to the DIA, which is a really big museum, really big and important museum, art museum in Detroit. We're wandering around the museum. I just got my camera, so I'm taking pictures of like everything. I had wandered away from my mother. I was in some room, had mosaics or something, and I was taking like a bunch of pictures. And I was there for maybe like 10 minutes. And a security guard came in and was like, are you Demetria? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, come with me. I'm thinking something's happened to my mother. They take me to the security desk and my mother was like, there you are. And gives me this great big hug. Yes, I, I am here. I have always been here. Before I was here, I was there in a room taking pictures of mosaics. Why are you being so weird right now? And she was like, I didn't know what happened to you. And it dawns on me what happened. My mother couldn't find me for 10 minutes in a museum and reported me missing and had security looking for me. I was 37 at the time. 
So the idea that this little girl goes missing with a grown ass man, friend of the family or otherwise, and you wait a whole weekend, crazy, crazy. So I realized then that I'm probably not going to make it for the 20 minute mark. So keep watching, keep watching 20 minute mark. The father starts talking about the man who would go on later to abduct his daughter. He and the guy drive out to the middle of nowhere. The guy says that his wife won't do him. and He's so frustrated in his marriage and he just needs some relief. Er? <laughs> he asked the man for a hand job and the man complied. I just, I, I just, I had to pause. I had to pause. I had to get up. I had to walk around the room. It's like, that's when you realize, like you realize officially, like I am on the crazy train and this train is going off the rails. And that's exactly what it proceeded, proceeded to do. When we got to the part about aliens, I just shut my laptop screen. This documentary is the crazy shit I have ever seen. And then like after the girls abducted and then the mother was like, yes, I had an affair with him. Like he kidnapped your child, took her to another country, married her at 12 years old. Y'all want to believe that he had no sexual contact with her, which is ridiculous. That's just shit y'all saying for Netflix. And then you went and had an eight month affair with him. Even if it was an eight day affair, even if it was an eight minute affair, but you knew he abducted your daughter. You didn't press charges against him. And then you ended up having an eight month affair with him. And this is after you knew that he was sleeping with your husband. Y'all gave your child away in exchange for sexual favors with this man. That's gross and disgusting. And I don't understand how those parents didn't get charged. The 70s, it was a different time. We were naive. We didn't see the red flags, my ass. They need a second documentary about that documentary to fill in all the holes they left. I feel bad for that child. And she's 12 years old, believing in aliens. What kind of raising are y'all doing in this household? Talking about he slept in her bed four times a week for six months. Sir, where was your family? No one wondered why this married man and father of five wasn't home with his wife and children. We gonna put the child on a plane and send her to the man who just abducted her. This movie needs a new title. We gave our child to a predator for sexual favors. Stop playing with me. Stop playing with me. Whew. This week was a lot. I feel like we went all ratchet this week. Well, well-read black girl. That was respectable. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Ratchet and Respectable. I deeply appreciate you. I love our courting process. I think we're going very well. So you keep clicking and I keep talking. We'll see what happens at the end of this 90 days. But in the meantime, you can follow me on my social media pages at Demetria L. Lucas. You can follow me on my blog at DemetriaLLucas.com. And if you enjoyed what you've heard, leave a review or at least click the little stars. Click five. Fours are nice. Fives are better. If you did not like this episode, you can fully feel free not to let me know. You can just keep it to yourself. Like, you don't need to share that with me. You not liking me and not my business. I think that's everything. So we'll talk again next week, yeah? Okay. Talk soon. Bye.